Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Mr. Huerta. Uh, today to talk to you about the early republic period of U.S. history. Kind of um, just keep you updated with some of those kind of key terms, key concepts, as we get to kind of the turn of the 1800s right in U.S. history. So thanks for being aboard, and here we go. All right, guys, so some of the key uh, kind of uh, terms early on in the chapter are uh, Gabriel's Rebellion, sometimes called Prosser's Rebellion, for the, named after the founder of the rebellion, a guy named Gabriel Prosser. Uh, so this is a rebellion that was based in Richmond, Virginia, around 1800 or so, and uh, basically was, you know, nearly successful, but was thwarted uh, kind of at the last moment and uh, crushed very, very harshly. But Prosser's Rebellion is an example of a, a more kind of urban uh, rebellion, so a little bit different from what we've seen with, like, the Stono Rebellion, and then later on, like, we'll see with the Nat Turner Rebellion, right, the most famous in U.S. US history. Um, but, again, same thing in that, you know, all these rebellions on the part of slaves, especially in the, the, uh, in the uh, U.S., are uh, crushed down very, very harshly and then lead to a lot of strict uh, ordinances, right, strict rules against those slave populations in these regions. So, again, we talked about that thing before, how you know, students always ask and people are always curious, right, why didn't the slaves fight back more? Well, they absolutely did, but... Of course, any time there was one of these rebellions, I mean, everybody's executed. Anybody who was involved, anybody who knew anything. And then not only that, the rules get kind of tougher and tougher as time goes on as these rebellions uh, pass. Another thing is the Haitian Revolution. I believe that dates to about 1799 or so. I may be a little bit off of that. I apologize. But, of course, this is the uh, revolution led by Toussaint L'Overture, right? So uh, the key thing with the Haitian Revolution is, remember, it's, uh, Haiti is the last kind of standing bastion of the old French Empire, right? which was lost in the French and Indian War, Seven Years' War. And, uh, you know, what, what is done in, his, in Haiti is pretty amazing. Uh, you know, it's the first, um, it's not necessarily the first successful slave rebellion, but it's the first to basically lead to the founding of its own nation, right, the nation of Haiti. Now, of course, we know how that has played out today, right? Haiti, one of the poorest spots in the hemisphere, and has its uh, definitely its own struggles. But, uh, again, a symbol of, uh, you know, kind of the changing times, a symbol of a, people kind of taking power for themselves and the uh you know the impacts even worldwide right with um you know the pressure of napoleon uh you know now kind of losing this right and things like that you know a lot of people point to the loss of haiti as being a big reason why the u.s is able to get louisiana down the road so again the haitian rebellion or haitian revolution right and the creation of that nation uh, you know kind of a key part of of this time period i guess that leads us into the louisiana purchase so again, this is the purchase of the territory now ranging from, you know, just west of the Mississippi all the way through to what is today's parts of the northwest, right? I think even parts of Montana, Idaho in there along the Missouri River. So, of course, this is something that's done under the presidency of Thomas Jefferson. And, you know, initially he kind of orders a kind of surveying of the land, right, and a study of the land, of course, led by the famous Lewis and Clark expedition. But uh, there's a lot of questions regarding the Louisiana Purchase, right? Like initially... Um, you know, the, the kind of directives were to see if we could buy New Orleans and to see if that port could be secured for the United States. When, you know, France makes it kind of known that because of Haiti and some of the other situations they've run into and their expensive wars going on in Europe, that they'd be willing to part with the whole thing for 15 million. You know, the deal is just basically too good to pass up for the Jefferson administration. And it also brings into a lot of questions the, uh, you know, some of the, the things that Jefferson had done in the past regarding constitutional power, all that stuff. So people were always quick to point to the Louisiana Purchase as a time when Jefferson kind of, you know, not necessarily ignored, but maybe put a set aside those views of the Constitution in order to do something good here, which was acquiring a ton of territory uh, for the new country, and a lot of room to grow as well. Uh, again, key uh, kind of negotiator of that, James Monroe, 
will get a lot of acclaim and kind of make a name for himself throughout uh, through this purchase. So again, Louisiana Purchase, right? Uh, 1803, uh, Lewis and Clark, uh, you know, expedition kind of during that time as well. And again, the, here again, the nation has basically doubled its size, right? We doubled right after the revolution. We double again a little bit more than, uh, or about two decades later. So pretty amazing stuff. You know, fortune seems to be smiling down on this young country. All right, guys, uh, some other things. Uh, the term embargo, pretty important in the chapter. Of course, embargo is basically when you stop or halt trade with a nation. And usually this is done, you know, as kind of seen as a step towards war. And, of course, this was done at a time where we're kind of put in a really rough place between the rivalry between England and France. And, you know, Jefferson here, not his, you know, best moment, but in a way to try to kind of contain or control the issue, uh, you know, basically says, you know, okay, since both countries keep continuing to bother us, keep continuing to mess with our trade, with our sovereignty, right, we won't trade with anybody. But this kind of backfires in that, you know, a lot of the regions within the U.S. will be really upset by this because their, you know, their livelihood kind of hinders on this trade and on this economic activity. So it'll create a lot of problems. Um, okay, other further things, uh, Sally Hemings, an important name to know. So this is, uh, you know, basically widely accepted a, a, a slave to the Jefferson family, but at the same time, um, you know, a lot of tons of evidence pointing to um, you know, a long relationship between herself and our third president, Thomas Jefferson, uh, dating back quite a while. And by all intents and purposes, we believe they did care for each other quite a bit. But something that has uh, you know, only come to light maybe in the last couple of decades and really been talked about and stuff. Again, that is Sally Hemings. Uh, some other stuff, uh, things going on with the kind of uh, natives in the Midwest, right, under Tecumseh and other leaders. Uh, of course, trying to fight for trying to fight for the onslaught, right, the continuous flow of settlers to the uh, Mississippi region and so forth, largely unsuccessful, uh, but important, an important part of this as well. Uh, another issue, impressment, now dealing, going back to the kind of the situation with France and England and maritime rights or naval rights. So impressment, does it mean to impress, right, like to make um, someone think, uh, you know, think you're doing well or, or you look good or whatever, right? This impressment has to do with the military and with the Navy in particular. But basically what the British had been doing for some time in the early 1800s was, uh, you know, in a way almost like kidnapping or impressing, as it's called, uh, American sailors into their Navy. The story goes, you know, basically the British are kind of stressed or kind of worn thin with the wars with Napoleon, uh, things going on in Europe. And uh, you know, basically what they're doing is kind of kidnapping American sailors and forcing them to serve in the British Navy. So, of course, this is a violation of our rights on, on tons of levels. And, uh, you know, going to be a key cause of the War of 1812 and a factor in that. Uh, let's see, other issues, other things. Uh, we have the group of Warhawks, these young Western, mostly Western, Southern congressmen, uh, people like uh, John Calhoun. I mean, in a lot of ways, uh, Henry Clay, also another one of these. But don't to be a bit aggressive, don't to be kind of land hungry. Uh, they're going to be a lot of the, you know, they're going to create a lot of the clamor that is the reason why we join or we get into the War of 1812. Uh, you know, as a way to gain land, as a way to, um, you know, increase kind of the prosperity of the nation. At least that's the view. Of course, Andrew Jackson also kind of makes a name during this time in his battles with the Southeast uh, uh, natives or uh, groups like the Creek and so forth. And, uh, of course, through the War of 1812, that's kind of one of the lasting impacts is, you know, with the last Battle of New Orleans, the big American victory there, Andrew Jackson kind of becomes a household name and a very uh, rising star you know, politically. And, of course, eventually will be president. Um, the Hartford Convention, uh, a key part of kind of the War of 1812. So there's this kind of underlying thing going on during the War of 1812 under President James Madison at the time, where again, we're at war with England, right? And 
gets really ugly in some cases, right? We, uh, Washington, D.C. is taken over by the British for some time. You know, it kind of depends what region, and sometimes it looks good for the Americans, sometimes bad. But what happened basically with the Hartford Convention are the situation in New England was that New England was tied into uh, economic trade with Britain and were really being hurt by this. So there was a lot of illegal trade going on. And again, weird in that the U.S. is at war, right, with Britain. But, uh, you know, especially the, the New England area, the Northeast, was still carrying on trade with Britain. So the Hartford Convention was uh, basically kind of a meeting where uh, basically things were discussed about maybe, uh, you know, it not being in the best interest of New England to be a part of the United States and stuff like that, rumblings like that. So, you know, eventually it would really kind of be, be squashed. But it shows you and it hints at a lot of the regional divisions, right, that will, of course, play on and get worse and worse as we go through the 1800s. So again, that is a Hartford Convention, largely because of the economic situation and the War uh, of 1812 with Great Britain. All right, guys, the Star-Spangled uh, Banner, of course, composed by Francis Scott Key. So this is, uh, you know, I always tell students, kind of like a primary source. I mean, he's basically describing the fort, the bombing of Fort McHenry, right, at the hands of the British. You know, think of the words, right, the bombs bursting in air, the flag still there, all that stuff. You know, literally describing it almost word for word. And, of course, is going to be the anthem of the United States uh, later. So again, very, very, uh, you know, a lot of kind of nationalism tied into this, this time period in U.S. history. Uh, for internal improvements and uh, the American system, these are kind of tied into each other. But especially, you know, once the War of 1812 is done, we see kind of a, a new era ushered in in U.S. history where uh, this focus was now inwards, right? You know, before, and it'll always be a little bit of like spreading out west, conquering the natives, expanding, expanding. But a lot of it now is internal and like, looking at what infrastructure improvements can be made. You know, during this time, we'll have the National Road built. The Erie Canal will be, uh, you know, New York's kind of crowning achievement and very, very impactful uh, economically for a lot of the country, especially New York and that area. So, again, the American system is the idea is, you know, let's take care of things here at home, be more self-sufficient, right, be more independent instead of relying on other nations because we've seen, you know, in the early republic era, the problems with that, right, by relying on other nations, we kind of get dragged into their drama, basically, right? Their wars, their, their disputes. So uh, you know, this is a key kind of shift in momentum towards, you know, looking a little bit more inward, basically, as a nation. And finally, the Monroe Doctrine, right, 1824, uh, given the name of Monroe, but largely composed by John Adams, John Quincy Adams, the Secretary of State at the time. But this is kind of an important precedent showing kind of a new era of U.S. history where we're, you know, in, in the doctrine, basically, it's warning uh, kind of old and traditional European powers to basically kind of stay away from this hemisphere, right? And in return, we will avoid getting ourselves involved in your affairs. But when it comes to the Americas, when it comes to the Western Hemisphere, you know, the U.S. won't, won't necessarily tolerate that. Now, again, we don't have a lot of the, uh, I would say, the, like the bite, the muscle to back this up yet, right? We're not too strong of a country. But it shows like a level of confidence, a level of rising nationalism. That's, a, you know, an important kind of sign of the times. All right, guys, I try to be as concise as possible. Hope you learned a little bit of something. Hope it helps you a little bit. And, uh, of course, feel free. If you have any questions, anything, let me know. And enjoy the rest of your day. Talk to you next time.